With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Catherine Children and Mark Eddy joining us. Thank you guys so much for your time. Catherine, you've written an awesome book, Shakespeare Suppressed. You're going to tell us some things about Shakespeare uh, that other people find um just commonplace. Yeah, yeah, this is just the way Shakespeare is, but you have found things contrary to that, and I'm very excited to hear about them. And Mark Eddy, you have done some awesome booking work for the show, man. You've sent me some incredibly cool guests, uh, and Catherine is no different, so I'm super grateful that you are joining us for this one as well. And uh, if you don't mind, let's run around the table and do some intros for my audience that's not too familiar with you. Uh, I was raised well, so Catherine, if you don't mind, kick us off. I'm Catherine Children, and um, I have been interested in the Shakespeare authorship question since 1985, I think. It's been many years, decades of uh, researching and studying it. And um, I was a UCLA history major before, just before I learned about this controversy. And um, that really uh, got me going. So why did you feel um, so compelled to Shakespeare in the first place? Why was that such a draw for you rather than like Escher or, you know, um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, Bill Watterson or something like that, like investigating another author and seeing, you know, something like that. I know those are two legitimate authors. What I mean by this is say uh, any other topic of uh, interest for yours. What was Shakespeare? What was that pull? Well, the the initial pull, uh, pull was my English teacher, high school. English. And she mentioned that there was some people who believed that Shakespeare was Christopher Marlowe. And that's all she said. Um, and that stuck in my brain. And then when I came across a debate on the question with Charlton Ogburn and a Shakespeare professor, I said, I'm going to watch it, you know, and, uh, you know, that was it. I saw one man making perfect sense that the great author was somebody else, not the Stratford man. And he was debating a I believe a Princeton professor of Shakespeare, and he couldn't defend his own candidate for the authorship. That's so, so interesting because you find yeah. this in a lot of disciplines and with a lot of information. People just take it as, yeah, okay, well, someone with an accolade told said that, and so we're just going to roll with that. We're not even going to question it or look into it. And this is why putting things under the microscope like this is so cool. Yes, and I love yeah. that a seed like that was planted in you so that you can get to the bottom of this because then you know. I'll get there, but it makes me then want to know what else you've questioned in your life. But before we go any further, Mark, if you don't mind, introduce yourself for my audience, brother. My name's Mark Eddy, and um, I host uh, Nightlight on Barbara DeLong's uh, network. Hell yeah, you do. And Barbara DeLong, you actually have connected us with, and she is coming on very recent, very soon. We have her booked to come on in the very near future. So thank mm-hmm. you again for that, my friend. So uh, then, yeah, then let's jump into this further then. I want to know what you have then now because of this sort of broken open and why, what has this mindset made you question in other areas of your life? Like the, well, if Shakespeare wasn't what we were told, then what else is going on? Uh, are you talking to Mark or me? Oh, my apologies, Catherine. I should have addressed you first. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Could you say the question again? Oh, yes. Uh, What other areas of your life have have made you, have you put under the microscope just simply because of your investigation into something that was very settled that you found to be something very different? Are there any other areas of your life that you've questioned to the same degree? Um, Not really. It's been mostly this. And it it just, as soon as I learned about it, it just became my passion. And I wanted to tell everybody about it. And I wanted to learn as much as I could. And I'm still learning. Yeah, of course. Right. It's always expanding. Yeah. And this is your second edition, which is really cool. There was more outstanding. So, Mark, uh, how did you and Catherine meet? Um, It... uh, I contacted the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship uh, 
to have someone do a show and they put me in contact with Catherine and we've been you know, working together for what, seven or eight years. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Really. Uh, you know, if I can, and I kind of got, got into this. Um, there's my proof of, uh, my interest in this and I could date it to when the show aired on April 18th, 1989. Wow. So, and you know, I just happened to be flipping through the channels at college and, um, since I was an English major, I was like, oh, okay, this looks pretty interesting and started watching it. And I thought it was, uh, captivating uh topic and you know ordered the uh transcript and just continued to plug along at this subject over the last um i don't know i don't do math but uh 30 years or so yeah, it's been a minute. Very cool. When, yeah. And it's so interesting. So, Catherine, if you don't mind, uh, blow our minds about Shakespeare. What? Just tell us some things we don't we think we know that we don't. Well, um, I, I often will ask people who I meet, um, what do you know about William Shakespeare? And what they'll typically say, oh, Romeo and Juliet. Or they'll say he was an actor. And that's about all they know. <laughs> and um, that's really amazing when you consider how famous he was in his own lifetime. He was greatly lauded and his works were very influential. And um, why is it that we don't know more? And um, it, it's really, it's almost scandalous that we don't know anything about it. And if you get into it deeper, you're going to discover, and this is what I did, is that um, the person that we believe wrote the works, he was born in Stratford-on-Avon in uh, 1564. Um, there is absolutely no lifetime evidence that he was educated or was a writer. There's no payments to him as a writer. There's nothing in his handwriting as far as letters. We do have signatures, six signatures on his will. Um, well, not on his will, three on his will and three on other legal documents. But we don't have anything in his handwriting beyond that. Um, he was born in an illiterate household. His parents could not read and write. And he himself never claimed he was an author including his uh, daughters and granddaughter. They never they never mentioned it. The town of Stratford-on-Avon never um, claimed that the, the great author came from there. Um, it was over 100 years later that Stratford-on-Avon started to become famous as the birthplace, but that was after many years of nobody making that claim. So there's a lot of zeros in this Stratford man's life. Um, I, to me, the biggest one is no having no records of education. Yeah, in an so, illiterate home. That's very interesting, the yes. background. You think you'd be immersed, you know, these works that, that we see and hear performed and, and how they're just held to such a stature of this quality. That well, you think there is so much learning in these works. Every single play, poem, it shows great familiarity with many, many topics like ancient Greek, Latin, astronomy, rhetoric, the law, you know, <laughs> botany, things like that. that. That is not taught at your local grammar school. And that is, you know, what a Shakespeare professor will typically say, oh, well, he picked it up, you know. At, at his grammar school, or he picked it up at the Mermaid Tavern, you know, something like that. But it's all very nebulous. And um, it's not reality, because we have records of people who attended Cambridge and Oxford, and the law schools, and there is no William Shakespeare on any of them. To, to know about rhetoric, you had to have gone to 
Oxford or Cambridge. You had to have gone to a university. And um, no William Shakespeare on those roles. And we don't even have a record of in Stratford-on-Avon that the Stratford men attended there. The records don't survive for that period. But um, it doesn't look good. He was at a great disadvantage coming from an illiterate household. Um, so those are some of the... <laughs> The main things that you 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 are blown away um, when you realize that it's like how is that possible? So there's a lot of uh, some people challenge the identity of someone, let's say like uh, Jesus, for instance, where they say, well, these works that he did were written long after he was um, dead and gone, and so the story just sort of amplified, and it's this game of telephone. Did the, is this what happened with Shakespeare? Was was there anything involved with this person? Or were the plays coming out and they just needed somebody to kind of go, uh, you wrote it? And because of the time timeline of when they were released. No one claimed to have known the great author um, while the Strapper Man was alive or while whoever he was, was alive. Um, and no one associated the great author with Stratford-on-Avon, that town. Nobody did. Um, it happened almost exactly 400 years ago. This is the uh, 400th anniversary of the first folio. That is a book of Shakespeare plays, 36 Shakespeare plays. And it's where that wow, famous yeah, yeah. image of Shakespeare comes from. This That's is the opening, in, in is the opening pages. Folio. Yeah, they call it the first folio. Folio um, means a large page size. So it's a large book and um, of folios and 36 Shakespeare plays. And it's the opening pages that give us the impression, do not does not say openly, just gives us the impression that the author came from Stratford-on-Avon. How did they do that? Well, um, an opening poem by Ben Jonson mentions sweet swan of Avon. He calls Shakespeare sweet swan of Avon. So Avon, you got Avon. Then you you flip the pages, a couple more pages. Again, we're in the introduction, the preface. And another writer refers to Shakespeare's Stratford Monument. So Stratford Monument on one page and Avon on another. You stick them together, Presto, it's Stratford-on-Avon. And in fact, in the church in Stratford-on-Avon, there is a monument to Shakespeare. However, the original monument does not look like today's monument. Today's monument is a man with an upturned mustache and goatee, short mustache, uh, beard, um, with a pen and paper, holding a pen and paper. But we have documentary evidence in 1634, which was not long after the folio came out, of a, a drawing. Somebody drew the monument. And it was not a man with an upturned mustache, pen and paper. Yeah, there you go, Mark. It was a man with a downward mustache, full beard, and he's holding a sack. And some of us think it was a wool sack, a wool sack because the Stratford man's father dealt in wool. What does that have to do with writing? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. There's, there's how it's censored or fact checked yeah. 400, 400 <laughs> years or uh, maybe a couple hundred years later with the quill added. Uh, big difference. Yeah, and they've yes. allegedly done this with a few other things as well. They've apprehended some works of art, some statues. They've re-chiseled some stuff. I've seen uh, that they chiseled like an astronaut and a dinosaur on a super old cathedral, but it's very recent. <laughs> and so people say, oh, it's an old, this is proof that dinosaurs, it's like, no, no, no. They went in there, scraped off what was there because it was broke, and then re-chiseled something <laughs> there. And so there's a couple examples of things like this, but this one seems much more deliberate which is very interesting. It's not yeah. even a good job. They just copy pasted a template and just replace the sack with a pen and quill or a pen yeah. and paper. And there's evidence that work was done in 1649. Um, and that was after the English Civil War said, and troops were known to be housed in that church. So, you know, probably got roughed up somehow. And then they built a new, a new one um, with <laughs> somebody who was not even resembled 
um, the the original monument. I like so, this idea so much better. It's just a fluff. It's a folly. Somebody accidentally knocked it over, backed a horse into it or something, and it broke. And they're like, oh, we got to build this back from memory. Uh, yeah, he was holding a pen. Mm-hmm. It, it's just really funny. That's That's an interesting perspective. So what is it about this idea of Shakespeare not being who he really is that makes a big deal? I mean, I'm just curious, why is it, how does it impact our everyday life? How does it expand our reality? Well, um, the great author, whoever he was, I mean, he he he's a, one of the titans of Western civilization. And we speak his words every day. He invented over 2,000 words and very so many famous phrases. Yeah. You know, like to be or not to be, um, to thine own self be true, you know, things like that, that we say and we don't even know, like foregone conclusion, you know. And some of the words he invented, uh, employer, assassination, zany, majestic, gossip, champion. These are just a few, you know. So we are speaking his language. It is, he is important. He he totally transformed the theater at the time, was, which was very rudimentary. It was like morality plays and things like that. He he created real characters. Uh, I mean he, I mean Hollywood would be bereft if he <laughs> didn't, right. uh, you know, if, if he didn't exist. So uh, we we really need to honor the true man. And when you do that, when you finally un- come to the understanding that Shakespeare, William Shakespeare was a pen name, um, then you need to find who he was. And when you do, uh, I believe he was the 17th Earl of Oxford, uh, you're going to find in every single play and poem some aspect of his life, which is reflected in it. And that's what artists do. They they reflect their lives and their works. I mean, I don't... I. Shakespeare supposedly is the only one who didn't do that. I mean, we don't have any life parallels at all with the Stratford man. Uh, what, what we do know about him is very pedestrian. Um, you know, he owed taxes. He was christened. His children were christened. Um, we do, however, I have to give him this. He was involved in the theater. He was a theater shareholder and he was a member of an acting company. But that is not proof of writing. So he was involved in the theater, I think, uh, as a money lender. He would probably loan an acting company money and then recoup it. And in fact, that is the first record that we have of him um, in involved in the theater. It was as receiving a payment with two other people for an, uh, a performance before Queen Elizabeth. So he was allowed to receive the money, him and two actors. So the first connection is about money. Right. <laughs> Actually, the very first record of him in London was as a moneylender. And um, in 1592, he loaned a man named Clayton so many pounds, and he was trying to get it back a few years later. So um, it's really um, the, the theater in the financial side or just simply finance. You know, it's it's really interesting, too, how big of an impact that entertainment has on people's lives. You know, we say this like um, life imitating art type of thing all the time. And it does seem that the character, whoever Shakespeare was, whoever wrote those works, made a massive impact on society and changed the direction and the course for those people at that time, especially with introducing new vernacular, which came with new ideas, new ways of construction, constructing words. Uh, and that's an interesting approach to be able to portray that on a stage, have it be so attracting and appealing that then it takes off. But then it really, I don't want to say infests uh, society, but it inspires society to create and to look at things differently. Just as your investigation into Shakespeare makes you look at, you know, it, it puts a little tinge on things. You, you kind of put a little light on some alternate stuff as well. But it's just so interesting to me that this character that came through made such a big impact because we see this. A lot of people feel that it's there's a deliberate apprehension of our entertainment today, and I don't disagree with this at all, from every form of it, from media, from entertainment, uh, as far as like movies, TV, audio, any of that stuff goes. That it's, it seems that there's a certain mass-produced element of it that is directly related to your perception, and perception management is its job. And so it's interesting that in the time of someone like Shakespeare, back in when they were doing these things, it seemed to be sort of an 
inspiring thing and it inspired people to go out and create rather as today there seems to be observations made that it puts you down it separates people it divides things it's just an interesting way that it's the same medium but it's because it's so powerful that it's so effective but in this day for someone like someone called Shakespeare to write these works to have such a massive influence on that to steer humanity the way that it did it, it seems also that it perhaps could have been the catalyst for the way that we see it apprehended in the way that we do today because it's so radical and influential on a society that it's easy to portray things in a new and interesting way that's so attractive that it steers the zeitgeist it steers the mind of the society it's very well, interesting. Um one uh, well-known Shakespeare professor, Harold Bloom, he wrote a book called Shakespeare in the Invention of the Human. So, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty high, it, it <laughs> is, high, and high title. And it yeah. seems also like more of a secret society sort of group of folks that wanted certain ideals out or perhaps to steer a narrative or to introduce new concepts, all the things that it did and it did successfully. And perhaps to do that, you just put it under a pen name and you just take these ideas and these works and you insert them into a media, let's say, like the best media at the time, which would be these plays as far as your the attraction goes and the ability to set the message out and to have it actually propagate. So it's interesting that uh, that would be an interesting way to do it. And all you would have to do is come up with a pen name because now it's anonymous. You could have several authors contribute to this, several Oxford professors do it, let's say, to sort of infect people with inspiration. Yeah, um, well, a lot of people, a lot of the Shakespeare professors believe that Shakespeare was a consortium. That, that's, he, that he collaborated with many different authors. I don't find that the case. I think I see, see one voice in all the works. Um, but that's what happens when you don't have the real author. That is um, true. Um, right. And so they think he's a collaborator. And they also think, which is terrible, that he was a plagiarist. That's, an, again, another terrible consequence. When it, in fact... Other writers were copying him and his famous lines and his characters. They were trying to emulate him. But the professor will tell you, oh, no, he, he was, you know, taking from this guy, this guy, this guy, giving the totally wrong impression. That's another reason why I'm into it. It's it's a simple justice. Yeah, you even pointed out here the first printed edition of Romeo and Juliet was a notorious private piracy. Actually, most of the earliest printed Shakespeare plays have imperfect or bad texts, which suggests that they were also pirated. It's very interesting because it's copy of a copy. It degrades, right? Like DNA, it just changes. You can tell that it's a copy just from its lack of clarity and, and awesomeness. And, it, and it's an indication that the great author did not want his works printed. That's a good point. And uh, the, I would say the reason is because he was a nobleman and nobility did not publish during their lifetimes. That was a no-no. That would have been a stain on your name, um, especially someone like the Earl of Oxford, who I believe is a great author. He was the 17th Earl of Oxford. He was one of the oldest members of the nobility in England. So he had a great family name to protect. Um, however, after uh, a nobleman who was a creative author died, it would have been perfectly acceptable for his works to be printed with his name on it. But that did not happen for Shakespeare. And that really is the crux of the problem. So what makes you think the 17th Earl of Oxford is Shakespeare, the most likely candidate, rather? Um, well, somebody discovered, uh, J. Thomas Looney, that uh, the great author was the 17th Earl of Oxford. That's the title of his book. Uh, there we go, Mark. Oh, Mark. Shakespeare identified. Yeah. yeah it, highly recommend this book. To. We'll, we'll link it below. Thank you. Yeah, that was in 1920. And really, he, you know, he proved it. And yet nobody in the Shakespeare real world really knows it or accepts it. So and that's really a, a pity. But um, the main thing is the Earl of Oxford, he was known as a playwright. He was a, a celebrated playwright, but he was also known to write anonymously. So, I mean, that's right there, number one. Um, he also had a superlative education. Uh, he went to Oxford. He went to Cambridge when he's eight years old. He was a prodigy. He had tutors. Uh, he went to law school after 
after he graduated from uh, Cambridge, I mean, sorry, uh, Oxford when he was 16. Um, then he, uh, he took a grand tour of Europe. Uh, he spent the most amount of time in Italy where, where many of the plays are set. And um, there are just many lifetime parallels in all the plays, um, especially Hamlet. Hamlet is one of the most autobiographical. And that's the ironic thing is that many professors believe that that Hamlet was the great author. They think, <laughs> you know, um, and yet what's a description of Hamlet? He was a prince. Right. He's a nobleman. He was a university student. He was a traveler. He had ship attacked by pirates and lost everything. Uh, his father died and his mother married quick, very soon after. Um, he loved the minister's daughter and married her. Well, he loved and he killed a man. So all of those characteristics apply to the Earl of Oxford. So, I mean, there's these great parallels. And uh, there's another great phrase in Hamlet, I am but mad north, northwest. And nobody has been able to understand what that means. I am but mad north, northwest. But for the Earl of Oxford as the great author, it's perfectly understandable because he invested, I think, 3,000 pounds in uh, a voyage to discover the Northwest Passage. And it was a failure and he lost everything. So he could call himself but mad north north northwest. That is so th those are ridiculously amazing parallels. So I could see why you why that would yes. be the most likely candidate. Yes. And there's and then there's the sonnets, for example, which were uh, you know, Shakespeare sonnets, so they would consider them love's poems, but they're uh, the great author's personal ruminations about the loves of his life, right? And one of them was a dark lady, a lady with dark hair and eyes. Well, the Earl of Oxford and, he, and the great author is very passionate about her, sexually passionate. And well, the Earl of Oxford was embroiled in a love affair with Anne Vavasor, who was a dark haired lady. And she had a child by him and he named the child Edward, <laughs> Edward Vere. I mean, <laughs> That's how much he loved this lady. And she, the uh, queen actually threw him in the tower for this um, illicit affair because uh, he was married at the time to somebody else. So, I mean, it, it's perfect. I mean, everything fits. Yeah. And now I'm wondering if he had neighbors, you know, grew up uh, down the street from a brother and sister named Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, he just had all these characters, somebody who cut his hair, you know, was named Hamlet. And so it's all these characters from his actual life that then he just wrote these amazing stories about. So what accounts for all of the interesting language that he has come up with? Because I make up words all the time, but I'm, I don't know if I'm close to 2000, probably, <laughs> and not all of them are good. And, you know, not all of them would influence society in a great way. I don't believe so, but I've still got plenty of time. So let's be fair. But how how do we account for his ability to come up with that amount of vernacular? Well, it, it comes from a terrific education. In fact, many of the words that he created are based on ancient Greek and Latin roots. So he he, he was, you know, um, he was a linguist as well as everything else, a philosopher. A his, he knew history. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah, uh, and he, yes, please. I, I, I was just going to say, since you were just talking about, you know, the queen uh, through uh, Edward de Vere into the tower for uh, improper behavior at the court, um, you, you know, there is the uh, sonnet 125 and the painting that goes with it. You know, I just want to make sure that we cover that since I was kind of, you just kind of referenced it. And I just don't want to go too far, straight too far from that topic. Yeah, very cool. Uh, guys, check the uh, show description for the video version of this. Of course, audio only audience. So there you go. Mark has been providing some um, amazing visuals for us as we've been going through this. And that's a beautiful painting uh, describing what uh, Catherine was just talking about. That's uh, Lady Anne 
Russell's wedding, and that's the the queen in the portable chariot. Catherine, what do you think about bringing those back? <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. Well, okay. um, the point that Mark was making, um, he was alluding to Sonnet one twenty five. Okay. Not even and again, electric. And again, this is. Uh, the great author's personal ruminations, right? And he said, word ought to me, I bore the canopy with my extern, the outward honoring. So what does ought mean? It means anything. So he's basically saying, was it anything to me that I held the canopy over the queen? I mean, that's the only explanation uh, of canopy. (laughs) Um, When somebody of high rank or an important person holds one of the, one of the four poles um, holding the queen. So um, he's saying, was it was it anything to me? They're like meaning, no big deal. Now, if the great author were the Stratford man, it would be the biggest deal of his life to be um, you know honored to be chosen to hold the canopy. Uh, but but um, in Sonnet one twenty five, it sounds like a bored courtier who's gone through it all yeah. and all the. And all the people who are holding the. Oh, they look like Shakespeare. Yeah. Post. Yeah. They, yeah. They're all. I mean, the same uh, hairdo, the little beard, the little uh, flavor the, saver down there, the little goatee, the outfit, the little furly deal. They all look just like Shakespeare and the little pose and everything. That's fascinating. Yeah. But, but they're, it's, they're all noblemen who are doing the lifting of the canopy it's not the village baker right 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 yeah it's got to be somebody who's you know held that pole that's an important mm-hmm. important role you don't want anybody getting squirrely or getting slippery hands you know getting nervous so he's telling us that he is a courtier in essence you know the great author in this with this sonnet 125 and he also he he calls himself grace gracious methinks no face so gracious is as mine. And, and that was a term applied to people of high rank if they were, you know, someone of grace. That's the way Shakespeare used the word. So, I mean, in many ways, he told himself, he told his readers that he was of the nobility um, in the sonnets. But that seems to be something that, you know, Orthodox uh, Shakespeare scholars ignore. Did uh, the Earl and the Stratford Shakespeare, the William H. guy, the moneylender, did did this dude and him live at the same time? Were they did they exist at the same time in the same place? Yes. Do you think yeah. it's then? Why do you think that William Shakespeare is the one credited for this? Do you think that the Earl just wanted nothing to do with it, and so he just found this dude in a play one time in the back room and was like, uh, "What's your name, William Shakespeare? Okay, you're goofy. Uh, yeah, yeah. William Shakespeare <laughs> wrote all this. Do you think it was something like that?" Um, I don't. Um, Which is coincidence? Well, um, the uh, the Stratford man emerged in London and on the theater scene in the 1590s. And the Earl of Oxford had been writing for several decades for the gotcha. Queen, in my opinion, okay. um, from the 1560s, even 1570s, 1580s. You know, he was pretty much wrote everything by the time the Stratford man came in. Um I think that he knew of the Stratford man, and I think he even uh, satirized him a little bit in a couple of the plays, Shakespeare plays. But um, I think that this was all contrived after both the Stratford man had died in 1616 and when the Earl of Oxford died, which was 1604. And it was in the book I showed you, the first folio, which is this year's a 400th anniversary of its printing. So I, it was contrived, you know, there's many theories out there why they wanted to throw the authorship on the Stratford man. I think a good one is that the plays were somewhat political. And um, many of the characters, like, for example, Polonius in Hamlet, many historians see this as a lampooning of William Cecil, Lord Burley, who was the Queen's top minister. Um, and if they believe that it, he, the great author was, were the Stratford man, they would not make this connection. If he was somebody if he was known, he, cool. if he was, yeah, there you go. Burley house. 
if it were known that the great author was a nobleman and courtier, then they're going to look at that character and see immediately that it is Lord Burley. I mean, that's one instance, but there are other instances of courtiers um, being, you know, a little bit lampooned, a little bit made fun of in the plays. And that probably entertained Queen Elizabeth at the time. Yeah, but for sure. it didn't make some people happy. So I think that those people may have been behind it. So I have sort of a fun connection uh, for you that I would like to make now, if you don't mind. I'm going to share my screen real quick. Uh, again, for the audio-only audience, check it out down here. Um, hang on. What is going on with this? Okay. Uh, can you guys, what is happening? Okay. Can y'all see that? Okay. Here's another connection for you. So the Batman bust from the 60s uh, show was of William Shakespeare. So one of the interesting connections that just to say about this means that, you know, uh, Bruce Wayne pushed that so that he could go and be his secret identity, Batman. Now, perhaps oh. also this Earl created this character Shakespeare to then allude to the fact that he was something different. Or maybe what? they did this this nod in the show to prove to that to you. Wow. Just a connection I made. I wanted to throw your way so that you can throw this in at presentations as well. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, thank you. That's very interesting. So this is the original Batman it. series. Yeah. So whenever he you know that. slid down the pole or whatever uh, to open the pole up, he had a bust sitting there, and it was of this William Shakespeare right here. And so huh. what's interesting about that, though, in my mind, I just you know I analyze shit. So I made the connection that perhaps uh, this also is an allude to the the Shakespeare that we know is not necessarily the one that wrote everything, and that there's an alter ego perhaps involved. That is fantastic. It all I comes back to that. comics. Boom. And <laughs> I. Well, obviously, um, maybe the, one of the writers believed in this and they, they threw that in there. That's Possibly. what I'm thinking. And now I'm thinking that, you know, perhaps there are other things like that all over the place. Because that little statue of um, you know Shakespeare's bust, that little thing is pretty popular. And not only in the Batman series right there, but you see it sort of dropped everywhere. So now perhaps it's an Easter egg to let us know that perhaps there's something else going on, that, that there's more to investigate whenever we see something like that. Yes, it very well could be. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Yeah, I thought it'd be fun. So um, what is one of the most mind-blowing takeaways from this? Like, why do you um, keep researching this and keep adding to this information? What is the? What are you hoping to find with this? Well, to try and find the ultimate reason as to why um, the, the Earl of Oxford didn't get credit. I mean, part of it were probably the satirical portrayals of living people. Um, but other others, and I, I happen to be one of these people who think that uh, the, the sonnets of Shakespeare, which were published in 1609, um, that they kind of told a story about the succession that Queen Elizabeth had a child um, and that this child really should be the real heir to the throne. But it's a little involved. It's in the last two chapters of my book, um, so it could have been it could have involved the succession, and certainly the succession would have been something important enough to to cover up if you didn't want um, it to be known that there there could be an actual natural heir to the throne. Yes. It's fascinating because it's such great work, but you couldn't be famous because of the, these issues. It's so interesting. So do you, if you had a time machine and you could go ask the Earl of Oxford anything you want, what, what's a conversation you'd have? Yeah, I'd ask him, well, first of all, I'd ask him, where are your original play manuscripts? Because I don't believe we are reading, we have read the actual Shakespeare plays. We've only read, as you mentioned earlier, um, pirated editions or imperfect copies of the place. So I would like to know where his his complete manuscripts are, number one. I hope you find uh, them, number... like a Dead Sea Scrolls for Shakespeare, like a Shakespeare Sea yes. Scrolls, where it just yes. answers all these questions for you. Well, I when I mentioned, you. I mentioned this early, yeah, I mentioned this earlier that um, there is no manuscripts that have survived of a Shakespeare play. Nothing. It's zip. All, all we have is what was printed, right? But we don't have any of the originals. So um, if we had the originals, it would certainly clear up a lot of 
problems with the Shakespeare plays. What we're reading today, when you open up a Shakespeare play and start to read it, you're reading maybe 250 years of editing by very, very knowledgeable people, right? Great, great editors who are trying to figure out what some of these lines mean. And the reason why they can't figure it out because we didn't have the original copy. That's and that's you know another whole nother nother, uh, issue that you know needs to be dealt with you know and that's why I say in the book you know if we find those manuscripts we'll read Shakespeare for the very first time. Wow. That's so that's like the first thing I'd ask and the second thing was you must have made a deal to for your anonymity for anonymity to carry on after your death and what really was the deal yeah was it how long between when the plays were written to when they were started to be performed well i believe and this is my opinion uh, but you know an orthodox scholar will tell you different um he was writing when he was a teenager and um you know that would be the 1560s and 1570s and 80s, you know, and so his mature plays in the 15, probably 1580s and 90s. And he was pretty much done at that point. Um, the Earl of Oxford died in 1604. Well, Catherine, you also make the point that, it, you know, with the, you know, about 40 plays over a 20 year period, he's cranking out world masterpieces every six months. Yeah, that's. Uh, you you have to believe that if he were the Stratford man. Yeah. Right. But if you believe that he was rec- writing decades earlier, then then it's all uh, makes perfect sense. It's accountable, and you can see a progression. We don't even know the first Shakespeare play that was written, and we don't know the last Shakespeare play. It's all up in the air because we don't know the dates. Well, in in. You know, speaking of the, you know, that topic in you know, Mark Twain's study of this topic from 1910, um, he, he, he's talking about uh, Shakespeare pronounced Venus and Adonis the first heir of his invention, apparently implying that it was his first effort at literary composition. So, And then what he... He has like no background, then all of a sudden he just emerges in London in the, according to the tra- traditional biography, in like 1594, and he he's uh, the the praise never stops, and uh, Richard the Third and King Lear and all this stuff just follows it, and and all all the sonnets, so. He had no apprenticeship anywhere. Just he just emerges as a great uh, uh, poet and playwright from uh, the boonies, right? Because um, you know the years preceding when his first famous poem came out in 1593, Venus and Adonis. They're, they consider those years lost. They call them the lost years for the Stratford man because there's nothing, no record of him of any kind. What was he doing d- during this period? And that's where so much uh, speculation comes when you look at the biographies, the traditional biographies of Shakespeare. They sometimes they just, you know, they just invent it and um, no evidence to support it. Yeah, yeah and, and Mark Twain's small book is it's only it's cool mark twain took a swing at this yeah that's pretty interesting yeah it's only 40 some pages but uh yeah he's really questioning this none of this stuff adds up to the the person that our high school teacher tells us about i don't think he's being you know really super sarcastic about it. He's just looking at it as, you know, with his journalism, you know, background that, 
how do you explain explain this? Like all of a sudden he's just here. He he's actually only thirty years old, and it was uh, no education. Yeah, what really got Mark Twain um, were the legal terms. There were a mm-hmm. few books before uh, Twain wrote his and uh, expounding on how deep he knew the law. And you can only get that from, you know, law societies. And they sometimes they speculate that Shakespeare was a law clerk, you know, during the, the last years, you know, among many other speculations. A lot of clerks so, go on to do great things. Patent clerks, right? Go on to create atom bombs and relativity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this, because you said a word uh, that rings the bell for me, and it's a lot of fun for the show. And so we, you know, here really enjoy the art of creating critical thinking. And so we do that through really fun exercises into speculation, which is the word that you use. So let's speculate wildly if you don't mind. Um, I am very curious to see that perhaps part of his anonymity, do you think that it could be because the source of this brilliant wisdom, these revolutionary terms, this brilliant way of going about it. Like you said, there's lifetimes of work written in these that were achieved in such a small amount of time. It seems very profound and not to deny the intelligence of one creature here on this earth, but is it possible that perhaps the anonymity is in, is there is because of maybe sort of a John Smith situation or something to where it was given to him to where perhaps there's some extra extraterrestrial involvement, some paranormal activity going on to where maybe he was a channel for something and then embodied this thing, came back with all this work. It was just like, ah, uh, I can't explain this to people. So it goes out under a pseudonym. It would have been easier than getting burned at the stake or stoned or something like that to death, right? To if that's the mode in which he received that stuff. So that's the question. Do you think it's even possible that it's sort of a a confidence issue with him revealing this because altruistically it was really channeled from a higher source. Um, I think he knew of his own greatness. I do, but I, I don't know. Um, I think some aliens came down, gave him tablets that were like, Hey, this is the top plays in Zeta Reticuli. And if you take these and then we've already converted them to Latin for you. So you're good. We asked the fun stuff here, so I didn't know. Or, you know, the other question would be that this role uh, was sort of a Saint, Count of St. Germain sort of a character that, uh, you know, lives for a very long time, maybe dipped in as the Earl for a little bit, created this awesome stuff, and then assumed another identity, perhaps. It's easy to fake a death probably back then, easier than today perhaps. But what I'm saying is is that maybe there was some sort of divine, not even divine, just some freaky woo-woo going on to where that, the person that wrote this was so exceptional that there was it was sort of this uh, ascended master sort of caliber of creature that was walking around here that delivered us these things and then just moved on but did it with anonymity. I don't know. I just play with the ideas like this, Catherine. You've just got to, you know, you don't have to play along, but that's no, the speculation. I think he, we love it. I think he did it. He, he was able to do it from hard study, hard gotcha. work and study. Um, he, he sponsored acting companies he held the lease on a theater he was deeply involved in the theater all the way around he 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 sponsored playwrights um other uh, secretaries of him were anthony monday and john Lilly. they were playwrights so he, uh, he he entertained the queen it's on record uh he acted before the queen um i am re- working on a paper that shows that that um shakespeare plays were performed from the 1560s to the 1580s or 90s before Queen Elizabeth. I mean, and she didn't go to the public theater. She only she only saw plays in her own premises with her courtiers. That's it privately. So um, he was just deeply involved from the very beginning. And the queen knew him, may have even had, you know, it was rumored they had an affair. Um, so. I think several people knew that he was a, an author. He was writing these works. Maybe so that I don't, was. I don't. I don't think it was. You know, from outside source. Yeah. Okay. Very. Very cool. And I was just curious. I like to ask. You know, yeah, uh, if it sure. was even considered. You're like, yeah, yeah. He could totally be an alien. I thought that's what you were going to say. You're going to come in here and be like, actually, Shakespeare was totally an alien, and that's what it was. Uh, Batman was his thing too. Uh, well. Then let me ask you this. What is something that you're looking forward to discovering next moving forward with your research? Um, well, I'm working on a new book 
Um, I hope to have it done maybe next year uh, about Shakespeare involving the art world. So oh. um, that's going to be very interesting. Can you give us a little little taste, a little tease? No. Okay. That's fair. I like it. I yeah. like your style, Catherine. <laughs> that's okay. I dig it. Uh, well, then let me ask you this on a personal note then before we wrap here. Uh, what gets you out of bed every morning? What gives you hope and keeps you motivated to move forward? Well, you know, it, it's having all these research papers work to work on, you know, and um, I have several going at the same time. I also have a couple other books going on at the same time. But um, sometimes when you do research, it leads you to something that you didn't expect. And so it's that, um, you know, uncertainty, uh, yeah. serendipity, I guess, is the term that yeah. is very very fun. I'm getting, I get a lot of that. It's awesome. Yeah. That vulnerable awareness where you're like, I don't know where this is leading, but I'm here for the ride. I'd love this. Yeah. Uh, Mark, what gets you out of bed every morning, man? What keeps you, keeps you moving forward? Gives you hope. Um, just trying to get the best guests on the best shows. Beautiful. Well, you're absolutely crushing it. We're grateful that you have uh, put us in that category. So thank you so much. It was just um, a good day for me. That's a beautiful day, man. And I'm so grateful that you joined <laughs> us for this and for the connection here. And so to that point, uh, we will wrap it on this, guys. Thank you so much for this. This has been incredible. Of course, Catherine, uh, your book, Shakespeare Suppressed, and all the other ways to find both of you will be located down in the show notes. I cannot thank you enough that I've learned something amazing here today, and I'm truly grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brandon. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Brandon. Thank Appreciate the opportunity. And Catherine, it's great working with you again. You too. Always. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.